Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today our guest is Doug Chadwick, who is a wildlife biologist, a conservationist, a prolific author, and a phenomenal writer. Doug's latest book has just come out, and it's called Four-Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. And as the title promises, the book lays out in very engaging and specific ways exactly how connected, how permeated by nature you and I are. It makes for a fascinating read for sure, but it also makes it very, very clear why our own survival is absolutely tied to the survival of countless other species. This book is truly remarkable. Doug is remarkable. And I am very happy to share this conversation with you. Here we go. Well, Doug, how are you today and where are you today? I am in tropical Montana where it's 100 degrees. I I can look out my window and see the continental divide. Uh, The snow's rapidly disappearing and it's 100 degrees uh, by midday. So um, I love this part of the world. Uh, we've never had a, you know, a late June, early July like this. Um, I've been up in tents in the high country for the 4th of July where I had to brush snow off the tent. That's a little more typical. But um, anyway, uh, I'm well, thank you. I'm, I'm alive. I'm, my brain is partly fried, but that's going to be your problem during this interview. And um, <laughs> I'm sitting underneath a fan trying to survive. You and I talked, I guess it was about a week ago, and I sort of just, you know, invited myself out to come hang out with you sometime. But now, given the temperatures, we've talked a few times since that initial conversation. And now I just keep telling you what the temperature is in Crested Butte currently, and and. I've now reversed the invitation. You now have an open invitation to come here, and uh, I might get out to you know to the whitefish area. Maybe not right now. I, I would suggest um, October after the uh, things have cooled off. We've got some fresh snow, and the tourists have all gone back to wherever tourists go. Um, in, okay. In Glacier okay. Park, we'll have it to ourselves with just a few grizzlies and mountain goats and bighorn sheep and so on. I like the sound of this. Is that a deal? Yeah, Yeah, that's a deal. Hey, you've got this new book, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it. Let's open with a pretty straightforward question, but not necessarily the easiest question. Why did you write this book? And I'd love to hear you talk about how you position this book against your previous work. I wrote this book, well, that's a a particularly apt question because I've written books on great whales, elephants, wolverines, grizzly bears, and, you know, the big, sexy, you know, the charismatic species that besides drawing people's attention, they represent whole communities of wildlife. I mean, if it's good enough for a grizzly... It's good, big enough and wild enough for an elephant to survive. All the other critters that make a home in that area are probably going to do well too. 
and vice versa. If they aren't, if the big guys aren't doing well, um, a lot of things are in trouble. So I, that was my way of getting at nature conservation and, and just spreading the pleasure of getting to know animals, which I've been lucky to do. And then I realized, you know, I've, I'm getting, I've got more than a little white hair going on here. And we stand to lose a third to a half of all the mammals on the planet before the century is out. We stand to lose a whole hell of a lot everywhere. I mean, the coral reefs are, are there are more dead or sick or dying ones than there are healthy ones these days. The amount of plastic in the oceans is supposed to outweigh the fish by 2050. And so, you know, this is, this is catastrophic stuff. And, and it's like your planet suffering a stroke. It isn't just a, a few bad years. And, and so what am I doing? I'm going to tell a couple more uh, stories about animals, particular animals in particular places. And I thought we're, we're now looking at planetary level loss. We're terraforming the planet. We're changing the airs and the water. And, you know, I, I don't have time for any more. I, I started to look at writing about individual species and places as finger in the dike stuff, you know, plugging one hole after another. And we've been doing that for a long time, since Earth Day at least, and that's not working. Um, jumping from crisis to crisis and trying to get new laws and regulations, the real sticking point is how we think about ourselves and how we think about nature and then the relationship between the two. Um, as long as we consider ourselves separate and entitled and conservation is sort of an option or a special interest or, you know, uh, it's one of many competing things out there, but not really essential. It's something we do if we got time and the money and, you know, uh, the stars align, fine. But it's not necessary. We're people. We're, we're we're we've kind of liberated ourselves from nature. We got all these different myths going on, when in fact we're permeated with nature and we respond to it automatically, and it's essential for our long-term health and 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 longevity. So, okay, I'm going to take on the whole the whole what's the sphere the the shebang the whole dimension. i think shebang is the technical shebang's the one the, the technical whole, term yeah. yeah yeah i was trying to clean up my words too i was going to say um but anyway i i wanted to emphasize I, it's fascinating to me uh all our connections to nature inside and out and i thought i'm gonna i'm gonna try taking it on as big as delusional it may mean i need to go in for counseling or I, I, I'm suffering from early onset dementia. I don't know, but um, it was worth doing to me, and so I did it. Yeah. Couple things I want to touch on from what you've just said. First of all, you just use the phrase "nature permeates us." That's not a figure of speech. Like you very literally mean that, and you talk about that in a very clear and compelling way in the book. And right, I, I, I want to hang on that because sometimes expressions like that can kind of sound a bit woo-woo. 
Uh, right? Bit, yeah. And this yeah. is the opposite. Like you are literally rolling the opposite of woo-woo, right? Where, in fact, one of the things you've said in our prior conversations you're, is you're like, I hope the book doesn't get too deep into the scientific details. And I have tried to assure you, I really, truly don't think it does, um, which is a tough thing for a writer to pull off. But I'd love for you to just say a word about that. So when you say something like, you know, nature permeates us, and that sounds like something you'd see on a Hallmark card or a, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Say, say more about what you mean. Well, and that is another way we kind of protect ourselves from the reality of, of, of our relationship with nature. Um and preserve our specialness and our uniqueness. And, and the way we want to see ourselves is as individuals and independent and autonomous organisms, as a scientist would say. And we simply aren't. And so what you were getting at, Jonathan, I think is, yeah, it can sound woo-woo. It's like we are one with nature. Uh, uh, nature is in us. and and so I, but it's real to me. And, and so I brought, I want to say, I'll, I'm going to say that same Hallmark card saying, but I'm here, here are the data. Here, here's our, that's why the book is called Four Fifths of Grizzly. And listen, when you say the word grizzly, especially here in Montana, okay, you got people's attention. But I think people, a lot of people are aware that we're very closely related to the great apes. But they wouldn't think of being closely related to a grizzly or a giraffe or a field mouse. Um, and yet we share 80 to 90% of our genes with most mammals on the planet, including grizzly bears. And if you go down to insects, <laughs> we're down, yeah, relative term, but um, we share as much as 40% or more of our identical genes with insects, 20 to 30% with plants, 18% with baker's yeast. Um, you know, I could go on, but it's like we are kin. This is our extended family in one way or another. So these genes are in us. And I love the, there's a, a book by a guy named, a well-known writer, Bill Bryson, called The Human Body. And he says that if you took all the genes in all the human cells of, of one person and put them, straightened them out, uncoiled them, straightened them out, and put them end to end, it would reach from you to beyond Pluto. Okay? Now, take the fact that we've got 30 trillion human cells in the average person's body, and you've got more cells than that of microbes living inside you, on your skin, mostly in your guts and mouth, but virtually all over you. And if you took, if you ground me up, Jonathan, in, a, in some kind of, you know, magical meat grinder <laughs> and analyze all the DNA in me, only a tiny fraction of a, maybe 1% or 2% or something would be human. And the rest would be from the thousands of species of microbes that are living in me and on me. And so, again, um, 
where's the individual there? And our, within, that's between ourselves, you know, between our organs, in, in our bodies. But inside each cell of those 30 trillion are somewhere between a handful and a couple thousand mitochondria. There's little organelles inside the cell, not only of us, but of every plant and animal on the planet. Those are modified bacteria. And what they do is produce the spark of life. They're the fuel. They provide the metabolism. They are the batteries that allow us to move and feel and think and everything we do. Can't live without them. And now start adding that up with the fact that the lives of the animals around us shaped us for hundreds of thousands of years and you could make it millions of years if you want to go back to our our primate ancestors they shaped how we think they shaped our cultures our religions our prayers our uh our skills our reflexes i mean that was our world there was no place to go out into the wild because we everything was wild you didn't ever go out into it you existed in it and, and so all of these make us more than how we conceive of ourselves as human. And I think that's a fantastic concept. And we, we somehow lumped all of nature into an inferior category. And we talk about uh, animals are brutal, bestial, you know, you're acting like an animal. Um, I always thought that was a compliment, but it's, it's not meant that way. Um, and and we separated ourselves mentally and that's you know that that wall we put up between us and nature and i thought if we don't break that down we're gonna live in a very very uncomfortable planet so anyway i call it it doesn't diminish us to be part of let's say we're all one or we're all kin it doesn't dilute our wonderful accomplishments and capacities as humans it just makes us that much more than human. I call it our, our greater selves. And I thought it, it helps get us past all the negative stuff that's associated with, with uh, conservation as well. I mean, we're, the opposition would tell you we're, but we conservationists are the people stopping progress. We, we want to turn the whole world back to the caveman days. Um, we care more about animals and people say, no, no, it's one and the same thing. And, and, and they, our relationship, our contact with nature makes us stronger, makes us bigger, makes us belong more on this planet. One of the things I really appreciate about this book is that as, as you've kind of just spoken to, it's a real problem when we start just digging our heels in as if it's just, you know, two two sides fighting it out, right? So on the one hand, we have the people that are like, I'm a conservationist and I'm pro-environment. And then on the other is the people that are like, I'm pro-business or y'all are crazy. And both sides accuse the other of being morons. And one of the things that I really appreciate about this book, and, and by the way, I just personally have no time on 
and I feel the same way about just politics in general. The minute I figure out that your heels are just dug in on one camp or the other, and now it feels like we're just having a, it's like we're into the realm of sort of religious belief. I'm out on the conversation because there's not going to be any interesting exchanges. No one's going to learn anything. It's just going to be, I'm here to defend my way and you're a moron. And when both of us think that way, nothing constructive can happen, right? Right. And bo- both each side thinks the other is a major obstacle to progress. And then we could get into the whole idea of how we define progress. But you're right. And, and it's a waste of time. Oh, well, let's, let's just say we don't have time to keep doing that at the rate at which we're losing species. Ecosystems are, are losing their health. The ones that sustain us, how is this an either or battle? And I think I'd say as a avid conservationist myself, diehard greenie, um, I've been guilty of, of all the same things I think have been done, which is we whine, we cry, we, we are alarmists, or we play the blame game. You know, the, the other side is greedy and, 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 and just awful and uncaring. And, and, and then we, we get done with that sermon and then we say, I, geez, I wonder why they didn't jump onto my ship and, and, and go sailing with me. And, it's like, no, 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 we're, we're trying to make a better life for, a better life for all those other critters is a better life for us, from the microbial level to the aesthetic level of the joys of being out in a place like in nearby Glacier Park here. As you pointed out, we, we kind of locked ourselves into a pointless um, debate because that's what we humans like to do, right? We want to be right more than we <laughs> more than we want to f- figure out how to have a have a higher quality of life um, around and in us and 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 thrive. Yeah, and I think again, where where I kind of want to go with this is because I think sometimes, I mean, mostly I want people to read this because honestly, having read it, I kind of feel like I don't know somebody who just wants to get on social media and be like, we need to stop killing the planet. Okay, cool. But where's the like, where's the research under this? Where are the connections? Where's the science that actually talks about and just lays out this interconnectedness? And so I feel like a book like yours, not that we're all going to go out and write, you know, 280 page books on this topic, but you have one of the things I, you know, am a pretty big believer in is let's not just spend our time preaching to the choir, right? If, if, that's the other point is like, if all we're doing is if your book is only reaching those of us who kind of are in agreement with you, we're still in a problem. And we, as you've said, we don't have the time for this. So I think for someone who's like, oh, wait, so you're telling me this book presents a kind of considered take on the topic? And the book will say things. I mean, it's an interesting statement. You make the claim like actually no one person or group or party is responsible for the current situation that we're in. Some folks might not love that statement of yours, (laughs) right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. It's like a traitor to your tribe. But I don't want to, as you say, preach to the tribe. I don't want to preach to the choir. We have 8 billion humans on earth only a few of whom have anything close to a, a broad and, and 
more complete understanding of what makes a human. The big questions, right? You you mentioned that you, you know, your background is in philosophy, and the big questions are: Who are we? What are we? And where do we come from? Where are we going? And I happen to see answers from science, and my job is partly to translate them into something other people. I don't want to tell anyone what to do. I want to give them the facts as I can find them to consider and make up their own mind. To that end, one of the things that I think is a really compelling part of the book, we've we've sort of been talking around this, but you talk about in the book how like, hey, homo sapiens out there, congratulations, actually. As a species, we have kind of won with the ingenuity, you know, and the rest, like, we are kind of top dog in a way. And like, congratulations. And because I do sometimes think that, again, some folks who might not be thrilled with all the talk about we got to save the planet and do better. Sometimes I think they want to be like, hey, can you all at least acknowledge that the human being has pulled off some incredible achievements, world historical accomplishments. And you're like, yes, congratulations to all the homo sapiens out there. But then what you do is simply, you don't denigrate that. But then you also say, hey, so it is a fact that we are largely, our bodies are largely made up of microbes, microorganisms. And by the way, some viruses. Because not all viruses are bad. And I think that it was really interesting in the sense that sometimes I feel like if the messaging is, hey, businesses out there or hey, people out there, you need to save the planet, which means you need to start acting in a charitable way that is somehow against your own interests. So make a donation to, you know, public radio. It'll be a nice thing for you to do. And I think what the book does is like, no... Humans have achieved a kind of supremacy, but if we don't turn around now and recalibrate some of our behaviors, we're about to topple everything that the human species has achieved. And we're already seeing, you know, your book talks about rapid extinction of other species. And I think it really does a nice job, again, of just saying, I'm just going to lay out some facts here. But I think it's nice when you get into a book and it's like, congrats on what we've accomplished as a species, but we've got to make some changes or this all topples. We topple, right? Yeah, right. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get across the idea and, and what my research into all the technical journals and stuff uh, down to the molecular level it showed me more clearly was, again, this... I'm saying humans are greater than they even understand. And we, we think the world of ourselves already. How can we get any more <laughs> egomaniacal? Well, it's not quite that, but it's like, yeah, you're part of all these other amazing things we call creation. And that also, by the way, support us and keep us healthy and that sort of thing. And if, again, quit thinking either or, quit thinking, you know, my side, your side. It's just a, it's just a distraction. Uh, there's no evidence to back any of it up. The evidence is we are symbiotic creatures. Every every plant and animal is. Everything bigger than a 
or, or above the the uh, size of, of bacteria is essentially living in partnership with other creatures. And the webs go on forever. And I think what you were saying earlier, I, I would put, we have accomplished wonders. Um, we're capable of wonders. We're capable of, of incredible altruism. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I could point out similar examples of what I've seen among uh, the great apes among whales, among elephants. They are tremendously compassionate towards uh, family members. So it's the reason you see the phrase more and more in animal behavior studies, like a trait formerly thought to be unique to humans. So, you know, we emphasize our uniqueness. It, it is being whittled away by paying closer attention to other animals. But again, not to take anything away from our accomplishments or our potential, uh, we can go to the stars, we can cure diseases, we can, I, I really don't like the idea of the aspect of conservation that wants to exclude people from pristine natural areas. Um, we've lived in them since we were primates, uh, you know, it'd be about 15 million uh, year, years ago, or well, the first primates are older than that. But what's good for our species, Homo sapiens, showed up around 350,000 years ago from other hominid ancestors living in wild environments. Our modern technologies and modern cultures arose, if it were a 24-hour clock, a few seconds before midnight of our existence as hominids. And what was good for us, we did win. We we, we beat the game. You know, we, we are tr incredibly successful because of our genes, but also because of our memes, you know, the learning abilities, the cultural transmission of information, as they call it. But what was good for 8 million of us is not necessarily good for 800 million of us. And now we've got 8,000 million of us on a finite planet. And so the reckoning is here at hand. And um, if we can quit complimenting ourselves long enough to say, okay, we done good, but now what? Um, you, you know, there are fewer fish left in the oceans. The ag lands are in trouble. They're polluted or they're drying up. Or, I mean, we're, this is just cutting our own feet out from under ourselves. At that point, our vaunted intellect and wisdom is, is coming into question. We just don't have any practice in thinking that way. What... Our self-absorption and our, our, our view of ourselves seem to work pretty darn well. Uh, For quite a while, <laughs> there, yeah. We, yeah, we didn't hit a million people until um, about 12,000 years ago. That was our first million on Earth. And now we've got 8 billion. And, and I don't think we've reckoned with that logarithmic code, that, that hockey, hockey stick curve of human growth and it's going so fast and so straight up that man we we cannot wait around and and keep patting ourselves on the on the head and saying man aren't we wonderful because time to think anew time to think of ourselves differently yeah and the the second chapter of your book is that the title which i love is just called kaboom and you detail this um and it is again, just laid out for us in really clear 
concise writing, it is the kind of chapter that ought to get us thinking, oh, okay, I kind of get it. And this is why we need to rethink practices because what what used to work, what was okay at a certain scale, well, that scale is just completely exponentially different now. We, yeah, we have no experience at this level of how to live in, in at numbers like that. And but again, I, I don't I don't think we get past that by trying to make everybody feel guilty or, or being critical. I mean, uh, I'm not saying that just because I don't like confrontation or something. It's just, uh, do you listen when somebody starts off telling you you're a fool? No, I get real mad. <laughs> yeah, you don't hear too much of what they say. You're, you're automatically thinking of your comeback and, and that would... Come on, you know, that's high school stuff. We need to get past that. This is a bit of a very current question, and I wanted to ask you about it. On, I believe, page 47 of your book, you write, close to 95% of the total biomass, the living weight of all the mammals on Earth's land surface, now consists solely of humans and their livestock. Okay, here's my question. What are your thoughts on lab-grown meat? <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. No, thanks a lot for that. Uh, oh, man. I mean, you've just said we've got a whole lot of people on this planet, and then we've got a whole bunch of livestock around to support the eating habits of a lot of these people. So this is one of the things, I mean, like, Look, what are we going to do here? Let's be frank. We can start we can start killing off more human beings and sort of work toward population control. Or one thought is we can reduce that amount of livestock. This is one solution. It's not here today, but it has been proposed over the next 10, 20 years. This could potentially change that percentage of total biomass currently sitting at about 95%. Is this something you've thought of? Do you think this is a, p- a possible solution or you're not buying it? No, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble just because the focus on technological fixes, um, the technology keeps changing and often improving. I'm, I'm thinking more of, look, I live in Montana. Uh, it, it takes 40 to four, depending on whether you're on the dry or wet side of the state, it takes 40 to 400 acres per cow-calf unit to raise, you know, to raise some steak, right? That's an awful lot. And, and that is the problem with that level of livestock. Plus, you know, most of our diseases come from concentrations of livestock. So it's, this is not cost-free. But the, uh, no, I focus more on the, that 4 to 5% of the land surface on the planet that we leave for all the wild animals in existence, all the wild mammals. That's heartbreaking. And, and it's why, well, let's take our, our closest kin, the primates. Um, a third of them are endangered or threatened, and two-thirds of them are declining. These are our closest relatives. And the same thing could be said about two-thirds of all the big animals, you know, more than X number of pounds, and it's not that much, a couple hundred, um, there's, they're declining. They're threatened, rare, or endangered. 
there's no room for them. There are no resources for them. We need it for our livestock. We need it for ourselves. Now, I'm avoiding your lab-grown meat. Yeah, you question. are. I've noticed. I want to. Yeah. Well, I think I'd rather take it farther down the food chain and say, how do we get that same amount of protein from algae, from you know, uh, different kinds of crops from growing crops differently, growing perennials where we don't have to go dump pesticides and fertilizers and, you know, so on, herbicides on them. Um, but that's really not, I don't think I'm actually qualified to answer that. I, I'm, I'm, I am going to avoid it. Um, but I, I just think we certainly need to look at alternatives because raising livestock in the dense numbers we have, cheek by jowl with 8 billion humans, is not a recipe for long-term survival or comfort, well-being. Um, I don't, I don't, we can't sustain it. And, and it, it means we go back to that last fragment of wildland available to that small percentage of wild animals, and we clear that, too, to grow crops or to feed livestock. And then we're at the absolute limit. Then what do we do? So if it isn't lab-grown meat, it's got to be something else. But pretty darn inventive. But it's going to be why? Why go all the way there? You know why? Why push it to the absolute? Look, I have a friend that calls our human population growth that you you described. He calls it petri earth, and so the petri dish is the little oval or a round dish that you grow bacteria on, you grow a culture of bacteria. And you put a little teeny dot of them in the middle, and then eventually they spread to the outer edges of the dish, they use up all the available nutrients, and then they all die. And I don't want to say, you know, nobody responds well to that sky is falling argument, and we are smart and clever enough, we'll probably find ways around it. May not be comfortable, but, um, but there is a question of whether we're really planning any better than the bacteria are right now. We just keep multiplying and using up resources, and there is no global plan to call a halt to it and, and leave some for nature. And leave enough. We don't know how much we need, but I, we, you could simplify ecosystems and reduce them all to human-shaped uh, habitats, and that's not a stable, sustainable environment. They're not going to do us any good. But again, here I am in the warning mode. I'm just trying to, my emphasis was still, how, how do we make life better, more colorful, more inspiring, all the things that nature does for us. And, and if, if I can ramble on a minute, the, I think one of the strongest arguments for conserving nature um, there's aesthetics, um, you know, it just feels right being out there, but it's full of wonder, it's full of inspiration. But the main thing is it makes you healthier. It makes you live longer. There's uh, countless studies at this point of how much contact with nature, and it's a pretty modest amount, time spent in contact with nature lowers your heart rate and blood pressure boosts your immune system, and clears up your cognitive processes. You go from intense concentration to, uh, to rest and relaxation, but also that people who live on, on, in neighborhoods with more trees live longer. 
people who spend more time just in a city park. It doesn't have to be a wild, you know, expanse. And the question is why, and I get into that in the book down to, uh, you know, the chemical level, but it just happens. It's a fact. And it, it doesn't matter whether you think of yourself as liking nature or you you hate nature and want to get rid of it and, you know, make the world safe for cars or something. I don't know. It happens, and it's because we are designed by millions of years of evolution to respond in certain ways. And I think that's one of the most positive things out there. And, you know, it can be a matter of just making small neighborhood parks, playgrounds for kids. Uh, it can be a matter of gardening on your rooftop or on your windowsill. But that contact with nature is essential. It's not optional. If you want to be as healthy and live as long as you are designed to do. You know, instead of going out and trying to convince people to make more, protect more wild lands or more green spaces, open spaces, uh, because they're beautiful or because it's a good and noble thing to do, it's like, hey, you want to live longer? You want to be healthier? More vigorous? Uh, wow, go to the nature store. Load up. Yeah. And I mean, this is where we get into like the critical importance of city planning, urban planning, planning neighborhoods. And I, I'd like to think that maybe we are, I'm not an expert in those fields, but I'd like to think that maybe we're getting a better handle on this. I hope I'm not wrong. Well, look, I don't want to dump a bunch of statistics on, you know, you, but, but, I was blown away when I came on, the, it's the National Institute of Health, I think, and, and it was that the average American spends 83% of, no, 87% of his or her life in an enclosed environment, indoors. They spend another 6% in enclosed transportation, cars, buses, whatever. So 93% of our existence in the modern era is, well, yeah, in, I call it sort of a, a self-enforced um, confinement. You know, you don't like it. I don't like it. Um, I'm sure the uh, most of the people you know are outdoorsy, you know, just for a whole host of reasons. But for Americans as a whole, that's the case that they are confined, and it's also the case that about a third of them, 25, let's say a quarter to a third, suffer from depression, anxiety, and other problems. So again, it, are we creating, when you mentioned urban environments, like just like conservation, I don't want to say cities are bad, nature's good, you know, um, that you lose things, you lose certain qualities of existence in a city. I'm just saying there is a balance out there. And to continually become more urban, which is what the global population is doing, without providing respite from that, the balance that we have evolved with for millions of years is just playing out of whack and we pay for it. And contact with nature, to say, is not optional if you want to be all you can be, all you were designed to be, and all your ancestors can be. And, and, and yet we're calling more urbanization, more stress, more anxiety. We're calling all of this a progress. Thank God we're getting people out of these, you know, these uh, 
rural areas and into cities and and let's make more roads and more build and so i'm just saying think about it what what really is progress and i think what really is progress has a large whack of nature included within it because it's within us it's part of us who we are you know the goal you're a philosopher the goal is to know thyself isn't it and i don't think we do and <laughs> there are consequences yeah, and I think, especially for me, that third chapter on microbes and bacteria and viruses, and it's like, hey, this is who you are, a big portion of who you are. This is how the human entity works. I think that does go, not the whole way, there's other aspects to what it is to be human, but it is um, an important thing for us to be mindful of for sure. And this leads me into kind of the next question, since you were the one who brought up philosophy, not me. I'd like to note that for the record. <laughs> the The opening chapter, the epilogue to this book is remarkable. And the note I wrote is, well, two things. One, I've never been more excited and enthusiastic about microscopes in my life ever at no point in time. But the the word I wrote down was the Greek word thalmodzine, which Aristotle, right, kind of famously said thalmodzine or wonderment. This is the beginning of philosophical thinking or just thinking, right? Wonderment, curiosity. And, you know, if this is a book that is supposed to Tell us who we are as human beings. It is such a beautiful account. This was sort of a your own personal account of, I believe at the age of nine years old, your father giving you a microscope and the worlds that this opened up to you. And I, I was reading this thinking, okay, I now want to run for president and I'm going to have, it's going to be a one platform presidency. And it's just going to be, I, I don't have good ideas about anything else, but I think like we need to make sure that all children have a microscope by the time you got yours at nine, but maybe by the time they're like seven or eight, because let's say there are people living in really dense urban environments right now. And, you know, they aren't going to have this access to open places that you and I were just saying are so important. Well, here's a whole nother way to open a world to young kids. I don't know. I'd love to hear you just speak to that. But I, I, I really, truly was like, this would be a way to ignite this kind of curiosity about the world at a very early age, you know, even in kids who might not have the kind of access to the outdoors that we would love everyone to have. Jonathan, I'm, I'm not trying to suck up to the interviewer here. Uh, you're doing a better job of describing my book than I am. But um, look, uh, I never got over that, my first views through the microscope. And yeah, it didn't require that I go out and uh, commune with a, a, a huge wilderness and wildlife. It meant I could go take a pinch of dirt in my yard or from the windowsill. Uh, I could get a drop of, of ditch water. Um, and wonders opened up beyond anything I'd imagine. It was like, the you know, uh, Disney's Fantasia was nothing compared to what I could see under a microscope. 
these living things that I didn't know existed. And the whole world is made of them. And I think you referenced, you know, look how we've been, we just spent a year and a half hiding from a virus. 800 million viruses fall onto each square yard of the land and the seas every day. They're ubiquitous. They, they per, that's another one. They pervade us. They pervade all environments. And to me, instead of booga booga, it's like this is very reassuring. We're obviously designed, you know, to be capable of handling that. 8% of our DNA, you know, when someone gets uh, arrested for uh, whatever it is, it's based on DNA evidence. Uh, 8% of that DNA, 8% of your DNA and mine is of viral origin. It was introduced to us by either just the presence, maybe it was benign, but maybe it was an infection sometime during the last few million years of our evolution. And some of those viral genes transferred from other creatures um, to us have been sort of repurposed within our chromosomes. And this will get a little technical. I'm just saying some of the things we do, including a woman becoming pregnant and having the, the developing embryo implant in the uterus, this is a repurposed viral gene that makes that possible. So you're here and I'm here because of that. And so it, it's just thinking about nature differently. But, but at a young age, there's nothing better than just looking through the microscope and going, really, really cool, really weird. Really, I never knew. I, this is a scab off of my knee. This is a beetle antenna from you know, the windowsill. It's like, oh, my God. And, and then you start to think, the secret is that the great and overwhelming majority of life on Earth is invisible to the naked eye. And once you really understand that by having seen it every time you look through the microscope, um, you don't look at, you know, to, to most people, nature is a, a beautiful bird in a bush and it's a wild kingdom kind of TV special with the cheetah chasing down the impala. Um, sure, it is. But it's all those other things, too. And I'm looking out my window as I talk to you at, at a uh, aspen tree, and which you got a lot of in Colorado, right? Yeah. And we call it a tree, and we'd say that's a plant. And I'm looking at it, and I now know it's a plant species plus all the geeky stuff that comes with it. It's not an individual. It's a clone to begin with. But... It's also not an individual because it's a symbiosis with a whole lot of other creatures, as I am, as you are. And the photosynthesis being done by all the green parts of that aspen uh, is being done by modified cyanobacteria that we call chloroplasts, right? And it's high school biology, but the chlorophyll, we all know, mills sunlight into food and starts the food chain there. That's all being done by, by modified bacteria that live inside the cells of the tree. And then the mitochondria in each of those cells are giving the tree energy for growth and you know um, reproduction and everything else the tree does. And then its roots 
are attached to invisible fungal threads, thousands of miles of them, for one tree that's invisible to us, spread out through the soil, cover an area ten times the size of the tree's roots, and extract water and nutrients from spaces in the soil too small for the roots to reach, or even the fine root hairs. And so that's a combination of how many organisms already, right? And that's a tree. It's like a, a lichen. You know, everyone knows, I think, uh, it's a fungus plus an algae, except it's actually more creatures than that. But I see the tree as a, it's a big lichen, but the fungus is all underground. We don't see it. And then the rest are invisible within its plant tissues, those green, nice green leaves. And then, of course, the leaves are coated with probably a thousand different species of, of fungi, bacteria, other microbes. They, they are inside the bark, inside the cambium, inside the plant, making who knows what. There's a lifetime of discovery for any scientist finding all the other microbes associated with any plant you choose to look at. And some are producing insecticides, some are producing uh, antibiotics, you know, some are just hangers-on, finding a nice place to hang out. The taste of strawberries turns out to come from a bacteria that lives inside the fruit, and I'm sorry, inside the strawberry plant. And that's a zillion-dollar business, making strawberry flavor. They haven't got it right yet, but nature has got it down perfect. And it's all done by a bacteria. We, you know, stop next time you grab a strawberry, especially out in the wild, and pop it in your mouth and go, hey, thanks, man. That was, that's really good work. That's what it comes down to a lot. I think the more we educate ourselves, educate young people, the more that we all understand these details, these facts on the micro level and on the macro level, that is when we might better be convinced that like, right, okay, so that's what it means, say, that we are permeated by nature. That's why we need to be stewards, even in the most selfish version of humankind, where we think we only care about our own success as a species. It's like, yeah, d you don't get to do that without taking care of all this other stuff. And exactly right. And and I, I got to tell one story. And I, by the way, I I do want to let people know I this is not all geeky stuff in the in the chapters. I I, I love it. Um, I think it's really important to know. But you know, there's bears and great whales and snow leopards and other things in this book. Because um, I've been lucky enough to work with National Geographics, get sent to the headwaters of the Congo and top of the Himalayas and all that. But I was thinking the other day of um, I was in the sub sub Antarctic Ocean off of New Zealand. They call it the you go through the the Roaring Forties to the Furious Fifties going down there. But there's a bunch of islands where the right whales gather. And these are 80-ton animals. They come from Antarctica in the winter. They go a little bit north. <laughs> and I dove in to get a look at these guys when they came by the, the Zodiac I was in, and uh, wearing a mask and snorkel. And I drive down, and I can't see anything because the visibility is poor. And then I finally notice, oh, that's a giant eye. It's about four feet away from me. And 
<laughs> and then I try to come up because I'm finally out. My, you know, I can't hold my breath any longer. And I can't go up. And I said, "Oh shit! I've got a, I've got a 80-ton whale on top of me." And he was really wide. I got to go around it. And if it, if it is uncomfortable with me prop, you know, probing the bottom of its belly or wherever I was, it's gonna slash its fluke down to take off, and that's gonna that's gonna be a really bad thing for me to be part of. But anyway, as I got up, then I, you know, I just had that moment of saying, looking through a microscope was a marvel. But I also got back on the boat and say, well, what now? I mean, I'm never going to be able to, you know, top this. If, if I'm a big critter fan, it's like that. I got investigated by an animal with a brain three times the size of mine, at least. And I tried to push one off my head. Of course, I just pushed myself down. But, uh, <laughs> but it was the same feeling. And it's the same feeling I get when I'm watching a grizzly bear. And all my senses are tuned up. I'm as alive as I ever could be with all the way nature has prepared me, my glands and reflexes and thoughts. And, but I'm seeing myself in that bear. I, I watch them enough and I kind of know what they might do next. And I'm wrong a lot of the time, but I'm getting better at saying, ah, I, I think I got that one right. But I'm... I see the bear in me and myself in the bear and, and that 80, you know, calling myself four-fifths a grizzly was probably higher percentage than that. But that starts to make sense. And then the Blackfeet Indians who live close by and call the grizzly real bear, um, seeing it as a brother and, you know, another creature in the circle of life, that makes sense too. So it, it's, all, it's all part of the same thing. And I... Looking through the microscope gives me the same feeling, like, hey, I was a microbe. I started off as a fertilized egg, smaller than some bacteria, man. Look at me now. I've done good. You've done all right, Doug. Yeah. Come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> well, staying with, you know, things that are larger than microbes, since you just talked about 80-ton whales, I needed to ask you about jellyfish, because there's a line in this book... And I did not know this. You write that jellyfish are capable of reversing the aging process and existing forever. Yes. And I'm not sure I've stated it the best way. It's a jellyfish relative called a hydra. And yeah, it simply hits a stage of growth and then will reverse that aging process and go back to uh, you know a younger stage. And then do it again. And as far as they know, in theory anyway, these things are immortal. But don't you ask, you know, you'd ask the same question. I, I remember looking through my, my, my microscope and watching an amoeba divide in two after it had eaten some smaller critters, had more protoplasm. It divided in two and then they went off. And I assume all those divided in two. When I look at an amoeba today, am I looking at the original one, just, to, you know, been multiplying forever, a billion years or so? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of, for a philosopher, which I'm not, <laughs> but you are, uh, it's a pretty interesting question. I want to let you get going pretty soon, but we should talk more about the literal physical book, because 
you could describe this book as an incredible picture book that just happens to have a lot of words (laughs) surrounding the pictures, right? And so talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, 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 I write the gray stuff around those fabulous photos. Look, I first, and I hope this doesn't sound too promotional, but I mean, I, I genuinely want to say Patagonia went all out and just a great bunch to work with. And I had a photo editor, Jane Sievert, and a designer, Christina Speed, and we sat down together and we said, I said, here's, here's the text. It's not a nature book such as people are used to seeing. And I don't want the illustrations to be the kind of beautiful nature or eco-disaster or any of the other conventional ways of presenting nature in a book. They have to be thought-provoking. And they, I, cho- I picked out some of the photos from endlessly scrolling around the internet and other sources or, or going through old century-old journals. And, and publications, but those two took it from there. And Patagonia wanted it to be richly illustrated. And and like any, you know, when I work with National Geographic, they try to have pictures that tell the story w- together with the captions, um, even if no one does read that text, that gray stuff that I write around the pictures, you know. <laughs> um, and but that's not a bad way to go. But mostly it was, look, I'm, I'm knee deep in, in uh, molecular biology and, and geeky passages, but you look over on the other side of the page and here's something stunning that you hadn't seen or thought of before. And it's not beautiful animals. It's some weird uh, creature that, that reproduces uh, by cloning itself or, you know, by virgin births or something like that jellyfish or jellyfish relative you're talking about, something that just sort of stops you and go, well, well, I thought I kind of knew about nature because I watch a lot of TV specials. I never heard or seen anything like this, uh, heard of or seen. So I I don't know if that describes the, there are some graphs in there that um, Christina did that also very simple, very elegantly describe or at a glance, what I was spent two pages trying to get at, and and that's a wonderful um, combination. I just was really tickled with it, and I'm glad you see it the same way. If the, the photos are, I don't think the text is standalone, and I don't think the photos are standalone. But yeah, that's not okay. the point. Yeah. Okay, as long as you finish that sentence, yeah, because. Yeah. I know another part, and, and this is something you had said to me. You're like, you worked hard to try to get, you know, the photos in this book, the graphs in this book. You mm-hmm. wanted there to be this visual complement to the text. And I think mission accomplished on that front. But relatedly, and I was curious how this went, because when we first talked, you were about to go record. Uh-huh. The audio book. And, um, you know, so now people, you can buy the physical book, in which case you'll get all of these great graphs and photos that are in the physical book. But if you get the audio book, you get to hear Doug read this. 
Yeah. So I, I'm curious. Tell me how. Tell me how the process went. Because you know, I, I confess to you, I'm intrigued by the process. It's on my my life bucket list. At some point, I want to sit down and like do the audio for an audio book. And my friend Brendan Leonard is always like, "Well, then stop being lazy and write a book." <laughs> and, and but I yeah, kind of want to yeah. be lazy. Yeah. I just want to do the audio for somebody else's book. So how did it go? Tell me about the experience. Oh, uh, okay. I I'm in a um, steel sided. It's not a Quonset hut, but it's a you know industrial type building with machine shop on one side and some other industrial thing on the other. And it's one of many doors into this complex. And I go in and it's a wonderful sound studio there. <clears throat> Mostly, uh, you know, wannabe rock stars and, and uh, musicians use it uh, for recording. But it's all dark. It's richly lit up by the, uh, the giant computer screens that show the, uh, or the giant monitors that show the, the audio and the precise calibration, precisely calibrated, you know, frequencies. And it's kind of a wonder, but I go into a separate, it's a big box, soundproof box. And it's me and my microphone shut into this soundproof box, looking through the one window at the distant uh, sound engineer in a dark room in a metal building. And I'm reading about how wonderful it is to be out in nature. <laughs> and and uh, besides feeling like a total fraud, um, it was way too hot in there. It was a metal shack. My pants are making a scratchy sound, even though I tried not to wear scratchy clothing. So I ended up sitting in my underwear, stripped down in this box uh, in a dark room and, and telling everyone, hey, you should go outdoors. It's really great. Uh, <laughs> Um, okay, but more importantly, I miss the photos tremendously as I was reading. Now, part of it is, look, I, I agonized over this book as I wrote it. Again, trying to make science palatable and interesting, as interesting as I find it. And so nothing I read is fresh to me. So there's, it was hard to, I, I hate listening to someone try to generate phony excitement or, you know, stage excitement what i did was i came back and i i emailed the people i work with the patagonia and say you've got to make sure that the audio book includes a link to a gallery of the photos and and the designs and graphs the graphics they don't have to look at it but i i missed it so badly don't you think it would be a good idea and also so much work went into that and it was a great collaboration that i just thought it, it'll, it's double, it doesn't double, I don't know, man. It just would really be a good addition to an audiobook. And I don't know yet what this book sounds like. I haven't listened to myself. I, <laughs> I probably don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe now people will have listened to this conversation. And now when they get the book and read it, they will hear your voice, you know, as they as they come across the words on the page. So then they get kind of the best of all possible worlds, maybe. Well, it was for a newbie like myself. I had not done an audio book before. And I've got the sound guy, you know, letting me know if I'm making too much rustling or anything. And then I've got 
someone from Penguin Random House, which is the doing the audio book, in my ear, in my headset. And I just finished trying to, you know, I don't want to dramatize the reading, but I want to make sure I have some emphasis. Sound like yeah. I'm half, halfway sure. interested in my own book. And I get done with, and I so first of all, my first thought was, damn, I write long sentences sometimes. I, I'm out of breath before I get to the end. And then the other part is I get done with it. And he says, uh, Doug, you left out a, uh, you left out an of, or no, you left out the S on the, you know, you didn't pluralize, uh, uh, grizzlies and <laughs> do it all over again. So it's not a, I can I hope you get to do it. I hope you have a lot more fun than I did. <laughs> but, but it's not, it's not quite all the glam. It's not as glamorous as I, as I might suspect. Well, it, it was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. That's for sure. My other suggestion is if you go ahead and stop being lazy and write that book yourself, don't read your own book over and over trying to uh, uh, edit it and make it better. Just leave it so it's fresh. And when you do your audio book, you'll be excited when you read it. <laughs> good, good tip. Good tip. What's next for you? You know, when, you, when I get done with a book, I've written 14, I think, or 15, and I usually don't want to do anything next. Mm-hmm. Uh, my plan right now is my wife's up in a fire lookout tower in Glacier Park, and we've got mountain goats for company and, and uh, just a beautiful collection of peaks that are get the first light in the morning and the last light in the evening. And I haven't thought much beyond going up and spending time with her and then getting in a bunch of hikes. And when I finally tire myself out, then I'm going to turn to what do I want to do next. And when I'm not writing books, I'm working with, a, let's just say, a Rocky Mountain Regional Land Trust. I'm the Lands Committee Chair. We buy conservation easements or occasionally buy land outright to provide connectivity corridors for wildlife between existing strongholds. Because most extinctions have happened on islands because islands are small and vulnerable and you get invasive species and you know bird rookeries disappear the local vegetation gets munched down anyway what's happening i'm trying to make this brief but what's happening on land is that the parks and preserves we have set aside over time which were wonderful and couldn't have been more foresighted but no one foresaw how crowded and busy and developed the land in between them would become. So an animal can't march from Yellowstone up to Glacier. And they can't go from Glacier on up to Banff and Jasper without crossing a lot of human development. So we try to find these wild ways or habitat bridges or whatever you want to call them and go to the private landowners in there and say, we will compensate you for keeping your land open enough for wildlife to continue moving through it. And that's the theme of the book is the connections between species, connectivity, but it's connectivity also is the guiding principle of long-term sustainable conservation of wildlife because they have to move, they have to exchange genes between populations, they have to adapt to changing conditions like climate and adjust 
And they are not, if they remain in islands, they're going to have the same problems with inbreeding and being vulnerable to whatever happens there, wildfire, disease outbreaks, changes in vegetation. Um, and so I do that. I try to walk the walk in between writing the right. And I also work with an international conservation organization. I'm on the board that works from uh, Argentina to China to name a place, you know, Siberia, um, and with tigers and, and these charismatic species that if you're protecting them, you're doing probably a fair job of protecting large landscapes and whole ecosystems. So when you ask what I'm saying all that, because you asked what I'm going to do next, I'm doing a lot of stuff in between. And then when I, I will follow my nose on projects that intrigue me and go out with folks. And sooner or later, I will, you know, I always come on one or more where you say, these are good people doing good work and they need to be better known. And thus I can be a cheerleader, arm waver, uh, and write about it. So that's, but I, I don't want to force it. I don't want to decide beforehand. I should do a book about XYZ. I follow my nose. This has been a real pleasure getting to know you a bit over the past, whatever it's been, seven <laughs> yeah. to 10 days. The book is really something else. We haven't really maybe conveyed, this dude knows how to write. And so apologies if I've gotten this long into this conversation without making that clear. But, um, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about before we were recording this is just, I think we both have a disdain for how terrible a lot of sort of academic writing can be, whether that's academic philosophy or academic biology. And so I spend a lot of time keyed into things like that when it comes to words and writing and language. And I really do think that you have done something uncommon by conveying very clearly, very compellingly hard science in a way that makes it very very readable. It's not easy and I don't see a lot of people doing that. And so on that front, thank you for this book. In addition to thank you for a lifetime of work in wildlife biology and attending to a lot of these issues that many, many of us need to understand better and start working toward and changing our own behaviors in a way that I think your book well spells out why we need to change and some ways of how to go about doing that. So um, mostly, Doug, thank you. Well, thank you, Jonathan, for that. And I'll just quickly say, I, I looked through that microscope. I wanted to be a biologist. I wanted to be a scientist. It's discovery and wonder, not because it was a you know career or anything. And then I became a biologist and read the papers and went to symposia. And then I said, now that I'm a biologist, I don't want to be a biologist anymore. The more I hang out with them, the more I realize what a need there is to communicate the marvelous research they do. But I also became aware of how poorly they communicated outside of the, the high priesthood. And so that's what I wanted to do. And part of it was also I used to study mountain goats and grizzly bears here in the Rockies. And I saw them disappearing in front of my eyes. And these are public resources on public lands, and I realized most people didn't know that they owned those lands or felt a responsibility, 
or that they should get involved. And they didn't know about wildlife management. And so anyway, everything led me towards, I, uh, you need to communicate, it's what you do. And, and without that, we just have, um, we have a, our, we're making the road a lot tougher ahead for ourselves. But um, I want to do this together. I don't want to criticize anybody. I don't want to rant and rave about the unfairness of this or that. I, I want every, I just, maybe it's kind of a Pollyanna-ish view, but I just feel like if people really start to understand the natural world and can see more of it, um, they're going to be with us. This won't, you know, that if I can get a little of that across in the book, great. And, and thank you for the kind words about the book and for the time today. Yeah, Doug, appreciated the conversation. Doug Chadwick is the author. The book is called Four Fifths a Grizzly. We will include a link in the show notes to this episode of where you all can get the book. And I sure hope you do get the book and read this thing. Again, it's not preaching to the choir. And if you are skeptical about some of these issues, then I also encourage you to check this thing out. So, Doug, thanks for the time and for the work. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks so much to Doug for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.